Meg has a birthday today. Discussing commentary from the superstars group. Transitioning from the realized problems into the likely causes. That and more on this episode of Awesome Today. Awesome Today is a mostly daily show about stuff. Don't overcomplicate it. It's barely edited and sometimes offensive. Enjoy it and have an awesome today. No, well, all right. Yeah. You're the producer. Well, you just keep an eye on that and you'll know. Okay. What do I do? I do like a hand signal? <laughs> do a okay. hand signal and a whistle? And a whistle. All right. Welcome. Hello. Hi. I'm probably going to include part of what we talked about before we said hi. Okay. Because I do that most often because I feel like that's honest. It is honest. Honesty is important to me. It's the best policy. It is the best policy. <laughs> it's valuable, especially when honesty is a little embarrassing for the image that we'd like to airbrush and present on the TikToks or wherever else, right? On the TikToks, also honesty, the name of one of your high school girlfriends. <laughs> it was spelled differently, and I don't believe that that was an honest experience in life. If you really want to go there. No, let's keep going. Okay. We got a lot of ground to cover today. We got a lot of ground to cover, and I'm not prepared well. Um, so talk about something for just a second while well, I actually get prepared. It's June 16th, and it is my birthday. Yes. So that's a thing. I'm 43. I'd like to report that 43 feels great so far. I don't think anybody has anything to be afraid of for your 40s. No. 40s have been pretty good to us. We've had this discussion. We've had this discussion about 40s and what they are. And in in our youth, and granted, we're just a bunch of silly-ass millennials up in here. No, we're not. What are we? We are Gen X. Gen Xers up in here. I'm sorry. I don't know what I am. I don't like to be boxed in anyway. (laughs) I forgot. But we've talked about whatever, whatever the hell we are that the... The stigma would have been, you know, oh, 40, over the hill, ha, 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 because that's what we saw growing up. But that both of us have commented that as we've entered and participated in our 40s, that we really feel like we're hitting our stride Yes. for the first time in life. And if there is, in fact, a means to both A, kick ass, and B, take names, that that's what's beginning to happen. Yep. So from here, who knows, maybe 50s or Fabulous or something? I've heard that they are fabulous. I look very much forward to them. Well, you'll probably be a widow by then, so I'm sure you do. <laughs> my The men in my family die young. This is an ongoing conversation it's that my not, wife refuses to accept. If you look at it. If you look at it, you'll actually some find men, that what I said is true. Some of the men die young, but they have been gradually living longer and longer. He won't accept it. It's, it's not true. That's why, facts. because I'm a truth guy. I'm a truth guy. And that's why I can just accept and say, okay, I'm going to live full right now. Yes. Because it, it may not, I can, I can accept it may not happen later, tomorrow even. Who okay. knows? Well, Again. That's really sort of awesome and it's, awesome today because it won't be awesome tomorrow for me if I'm dead. Or maybe it will be well, depending on my expectations. Of, <laughs> as Christians, we have faith that it will be. All right. Better. Are we going to talk about anything of meaning? I just would like to just relish in the birthdayness. It is birthdayness and, and you should so relish. 43. It's a big deal. 
doing okay. I love you. I love you. I love everything about your 43-year-old self. I wouldn't sub it out for any part of anything. Thank you. That means a lot to me. It's true. Since I am a words of affirmation, love language person, that is the best So you say. So you say. Okay. So here we are. All right. Here we are. Um, The awesome of today beyond the material that we're going through, you know, we've, as the two of you who continue to watch are aware, we visit some historical things of awesomeness to bring those in. I looked through them. There was nothing that I saw that was so awesome as to compete with what had happened in response to one of these prior episodes where we began to have some commentary. And I, it's especially awesome, not just because it's commentary, but because, I mean, this is a difficult material to move through. It's It, it should churn up a lot of feels yeah. and things in people. And so for someone to be willing to make a statement, to ask a question, to request more dialogue, yes, that's a... It's a very significance of strength yes. in people to ask for that. Yes. Uh, especially in a in such a positive way, which, hey, what kind of a jerk am I that I don't ex- expect that from the awesome community? Because you guys really are a unique group, very different than anything I've ever been involved with before. Totally. So Superstar Shannon recently yesterday today i don't recall but offered a comment on on one of the prior videos where and and truly exemplifies the awesomeness of the awesomes in doing so she wanted to um well rather whether she wanted to necessarily assign positive intent or not she did and that's that's a massive that's a that's a strength of maturity i don't have all the time, most of the time. Well, and if I may, I would venture so far as to say that she did want to because assigning positive intent is something that... Well, but wanted to, but maybe wanted to against what the initial reaction to conversation that was had. Yeah. She wanted to be mature. I don't doubt that she wanted to be mature and strong here. It's that the, the first response could have been may very well have been for far more than her a negative to Kyle's an a-hole or he drug Megan down into the ditch of badness or whatever. <laughs> no, here's why I say that. Assigning positive intent is foundational to yeah. sort of awesome community. And it has been yes. for a long time. So. Which is the awesomeness because yes. that is not society as a whole, as right, it right, feels, right. Yes. as we experience it through media. Yes. Um, anyway, she, she requested to continue the conversation around whether speech can be violent. Uh, Superstar Sarah also joined in on this thread, and I, man, I just appreciate that so greatly. We knew as we went through that portion of the video that they're referencing that that we left questions unanswered. Totally, yes. But we felt so pressured just to continue at a pace with stuff, didn't, we hadn't given ourselves permission to pause and really explore, so we were just moving ahead but we appreciate the request to dig deeper. The, yeah. the the strength and comfort of you ladies to say, hey, let hold on a minute, let's dig deeper. That's that's pretty awesome. Um, blah blah blah. As I'm trying to scan through my notes to figure out so I don't get too far off track here. Yeah, she brought up instances. Uh, Superstar Shannon brought up instances of emotional, mental, or psychological abuse as a way that language 
might be used in a violent manner. Right. So one, thank you for bringing that up. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't an inquiry taken lightly. I had committed no less than two hours today to one, researching things, and then two, really trying to maturely think through a, a respectful response as well as just examining my own opinions and stuff and Meg and I prior to recording sat on the back porch for a good long while talking through this as well. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you. Um, one of the things that I thought was important was to help me avoid this idea of concept creep where we allow definitions to change and all that. I went and looked up to kind of recenter myself to say, okay, the definition, legal definition a violent crime suggests that violence is a behavior by persons against persons or property that intentionally threatens or attempts or actually inflicts physical harm. And that's oftentimes legal definitions are written in such a way that you need to read or hear that a lot of times to really process what they're saying. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the book and this conversation that's inspired by you ladies, really, this all anchors around the concept of, of the word threatens. Mm -hmm. And for cases of emotional abuse or psychological abuse, these are in the legal realm somewhat interchangeable. Uh, but for cases of that, you generally see included some kind of power imbalance. Right. It can be children, elders, a spouse or a boss employee situation, but a power imbalance makes it such that someone no longer has the freedom to not listen mm -hmm. to what's being said. Right. Um, and not, not being able to not listen. That's a violation of rights. Yeah. That's a violation of rights. And it utilizes some kind of force or threat mm -hmm. to make you listen, which are the very words that are used to describe violence or violent crime. Right. Um, and another place that fits is in the definition of coercion, yeah. which is definitely not a friendly thing. Mm -hmm. So it's this is absolutely the first abuse that takes place, is this forcing to participate when that's the violation of your right. And I, man, I've got to think that that in and of itself is what, what brings the greatest impact or at least increases the impact of an abusive word from somebody. Yeah. I'm not a psychologist. I don't claim to be. I have not even stayed at a Holiday Inn Express <laughs> anytime recently. But I really wonder... And I don't know if there's any any real cohesion within that science of psychology to say, you know, when you examine that type of trauma, is it the result of words? Is it the result of you living in a state of constant or at least semi-constant threat because you've been forced into enduring it? Or is it some mix of both? And I don't know. Right. I think, I mean, I really appreciated this question because it mm -hmm. hit on something like I knew there was something there, but I couldn't quite get there um, cognitively as we were talking about it. But I think this is a fantastic example. So Shannon and Sarah, thank, thank you for bringing yeah. that up. It's caused us to 
look. And, um, you know, I think it's very natural for women, particularly. Um, we know that one in four women is a victim of intimate partner violence. And so it's something that maybe even if we have not experienced, it's something close to our understanding of the damage that words can do in these kinds of situations. And I think bringing out the idea of power and balance is so important because again, we're, this book is written in the context of looking what's happening um, in the university model of like learning Mm -hmm. and experience and stuff Mm -hmm. where we talk about like the Milo riot um, in that situation, people had the freedom to either go or not go. And they could have been in the audience listening to his possibly very offensive to them ideas. If they didn't like it, they could get up and leave. There was not right. that power imbalance. Right. You didn't have to, you weren't forced right. to live in that. Yeah. And so, I mean, you know, I'm still thinking about and still want to look into and just simply have not had the time to dig in the way that you got to today. Um to the connection between violence informing, um, sorry, words inciting or informing violent actions. But the book kind of so I did. I did look at that a little bit. Yeah, and and I mean, I'm always ready to accept ignorance in areas where I have it. I didn't know, so I was. It was interesting to me to see that there is no law against hate speech. Interesting, really. You can be as hateful as you want to be. That's your freedom of speech in an instance where you're not violating someone else's rights by forcing them to listen. Yeah. That you have to you have to threaten or or reasonably incite someone okay. else to violence for it to be for that to be illegal, for you to have overstepped the bounds of your right to free speech. Interesting. I didn't yeah. know that. So that now to kind of wrap up the whole concept, ultimately I don't have an answer to say, well, in this instance, could words be violence? My caution for myself and for anybody else that gives a who what I think is to say, because so many of these conversations do, in fact, end up coming back to the legal spectrum of things. I'm really hesitant. I, I could just in verbiage, I could agree and say, oh, well, yeah, that's violent language. But I'm really hesitant to adopt that and say that because... When it comes to the legal realm, things are defined very clearly. And if you go in making the wrong argument that this is violent language, Mm -hmm. you're going to go nowhere. You're going to win no ground. You're going to accomplish nothing. So to marry the language of things that might have meaning for what we care about, I'm not, I don't think, I could be proven wrong and I'm welcome to bring that on, but I don't think we can call it violent language. Okay. All right. Fair enough? That's fair enough. Okay. We covered a lot of ground in the book personally today, each of us reading three chapters of the book. Yeah, we may not get through all of that today. Gratuitous drink of the Topo Chico that has not yet sponsored us. Come on, Coca-Cola, where are you at? We talk about it nonstop. All right. So chapter six, the summary points. Wait, wait, let's talk about... As we move into... Part three of the book. Yes. The authors are examining how did we get here? How did we get to a culture where we are, um, we have good intentions, but then bad bad ideas come because we Mm -hmm. believe these untruths. So chapter six is the polarization cycle. And this is where the authors really examine how deeply, and you even touched on this. uh, Was it on camera or off? Where we talked about 
Congress moving so far apart? That was on. I felt like that was yesterday on camera. Okay. And they kind of explore this further, this idea that over time, actual studies show that even in the mid-90s, when you and I Mm -hmm. were graduating from high school, Republicans and Democrats in our country could peaceably be like, oh, you know how Republicans are. And, you know, kind of, it was just understood that people are going to have these differences. But as from like the mid 90s onward, the polarization has gotten more and more extreme. And that's what chapter six really covers. And not to waste too much time heading into this, but to say before we we really anchored into this us versus them Mm -hmm. and this either you're oppressed or you are an oppressor of whatever issue is at hand. Before that happened, I feel like we could see congressionally that the two perspectives could at least agree on this is a problem. This thing we're identifying as a problem, and then they just simply argued over how to solve it. Yes, exactly. Now... It's like, no, you're, you're, you're a problem. Evil. You're evil. Yeah. You as a person and everything you stand for, but you as a person especially are evil. Yeah. And that's on both sides where there is, it, that drives the energy into... Defense. Defense, casting the other person as evil and so much less energy into actual problem solving. Yeah. So. Yeah. All right. Well, point one for chapter six. The United States has experienced a steady increase in at least one form of polarization since the 1980s. Effective or emotional polarization, which means that people who identify with either of the two main political parties increasingly hate and fear the other party and the people in it. This is our first of six explanatory threads. My reading is failing. This is the first of six explanatory threads that will help us understand what has been changing on campus. Mm -hmm. Yes. So this idea, again, increasing hate and fear. The other party isn't just wrong or off base. They're They're an enemy. They're an enemy. Yes. Um, Effective polarization Mm -hmm. in the U.S. is roughly symmetrical, but as university students and faculty have shifted leftward during a time of rising cross-party hatred, universities have begun to receive less trust and more hostility from some conservatives and right-leaning organizations. Now, I don't know... I mean, I can't look and say I absolutely agree or disagree with that statement. Um, you know, the author offers, I believe in yesterday's conversation, this shift, and I think you spoke to it, this shift in representation of the two parties, but then all at the same time, and you and I have discussed this ad nauseum, I mean, who any longer, what, what responsible human any longer can look at the definition of a party as it stands, of Republican or Democrat, and say, yes, that's me. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's that many people that do. I think we can say, well, there's more things on one side or the other that are, in fact, who I am, but I feel like the populace as a whole, maybe, Mm -hmm. is less polarized than what our actual political parties in Congress are, where we have moved so far apart that there is no middle ground. Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree that there's very little middle ground. I do think there are some people who, their party platform, they are there for it. Sure. Every single point of it. But I question whether or not they're the majority. Yeah, I mean, I have no way to If they were the majority, then I would think that 
whether it's peaceful protest or anarchal riot, whichever occurred, would be populated by far more people than what we're seeing. Mm -hmm. Maybe so. I don't know. And voter turnout would probably be more Voter turnout would be more significant. Yeah. Okay, beginning in 2016, the number of high-profile cases of professors being hounded or harassed from the right for something they said in an interview or on social media began to increase, Mm -hmm. which, to me, I mean, this shouldn't be a surprise. It should be an instance of, I think all of us kind of approach life. Am I wrong? Tell me if I'm wrong. Do we approach life from the perspective of, look, if it's not my primary source of interest and it's not broken, Mm -hmm. then I don't care. Right. But there began to be happening some things on campus that were like, whoa, what the hell is happening here? Which would have caused those in disagreement, which by definition of the author would have been Republican-leaning perspectives, would have said, something's wrong over here. Who's in charge? Yeah. Theoretically, it is the administration and the professors. So then they would begin to look at and scrutinize to determine where's the problem. Right. Yeah, I think that that feels accurate. I do think, too, that um, we also see this in media in terms of um, right-leaning media really taking up the cause and pointing out things that they found to be hilarious, laughable, or right. offensive, or whatever. And um, and then that, that kind of trickles down into where, as the average right-leaning person may not really care one way or the other, if you consume enough media that's like uh, speaking derogatorily towards... Is it media by itself, though, that would inspire? Or is it media in conjunction with? With what? What's going on? Because definitively, definitively... There were events going on from 2015 forward on Mm -hmm. campuses that were out of the norm. Yes, for sure. Who before had ever heard of students requiring a safe space? Yes, or... Or of shutting down speakers. Right. Speakers being disinvited from Mm -hmm. university campuses. Yeah, that's a huge But the disinvite is far less impactful as the protest on campus that beats the hell out of people and chases off whoever showed up. Right, that's that's pretty aggressive. Mm-hmm. I think I think it's a mix of both. You see, and you're like, whoa, what? And then here's some reporting about it, so you begin to form some opinions. Well, sure, the, form opinions for sure. That definitely happens. But at the same time, also, it seemed to galvanize a segment of the right. You might call it alt right, even like the neo Nazi movement, because we have there was. Actual, there were groups coming in and mm-hmm. being proud of the fact that they're spray painting swastikas on right. university campuses and these types of things. And that, um, I think, reflects them siphoning off of what might have been a, productive. Yeah. Either a productive commentary or, again, just an entertaining commentary. Mm-hmm. And then, but that taking that energy and translating it to these fringe groups that we've talked about that seem to uh, any any type of these kind of discussions are like a lightning rod for them to swoop in and make their statement. Does that make sense? It does. I have a question. Yeah. 
do you think that the average conservative, the average Republican, the average right-leaning person thinks that the alt-right's behavior is okay? No. Do you think that the average Democrat liberal perspective thinks that Antifa is no, okay? absolutely not. And then... What do you, how do you feel then about that in comparison to what seems to be the messaging from Capitol Hill? In what regard? If you listen to minimally, I would suggest minimally that if you listen to whoever the most vocal voices are, the mm -hmm. most publicized voices are on either Republican or Democrat side. Mm -hmm. Do you hear either side really chastising the extreme edge? Of their own party? Mm -hmm. No. That's kind of a problem, right? Yeah. Because in the absence of chastisement, if you already assume that the person is somewhat of an enemy, yeah. might you assume then that they're secretly supportive of it? Yeah. Yeah. That's not very helpful. No. It may or may not be accurate. But you absolutely can't say it is an accurate statement. Right. We don't have enough evidence for that, but we don't have time for evidence, right? <laughs> we just got to make our decision to move on so we know who to side up with or something. Yeah. Yeah. We got to cover this last point and move on. No, that point sucks. I'm skipping to chapter okay. seven. Okay. Actually, I got to go to eight to go backwards on this to get to the points of seven. Seven and eight, man, this is starts. This is where it moves away, I feel like, yes. from like the theoretical, oh, this is happening on college campuses to hitting us in our well, yeah. home life. Yeah. And, and It moves outside of political party. Yes. Or stances and beliefs. And it really looks at what possibly could have been happening mm -hmm. that would have shaped these things to occur. Yeah, totally. And it does look at parenting because we're talking about students who've arrived at college. So first point, the national rise in adolescent anxiety and depression that began around 2011 is our second explanatory thread. Mm -hmm. uh, the generation born between 95 and 2012 called iGen, or sometimes Gen Z. Gen Z. And iGen referencing iPhone and access to yes, the basically echo chambers. Yeah, okay, yes. Because it's not just internet. It's right. internet where you have between, well, it's all the algorithms that try to find what you might want to participate in right. most next. Yes. It's surrounding you with these things so that if you even just were curious towards a thing, that's all you're going to see now. Yeah. Um, this is very different from millennials, the generation that preceded it. Yeah. Uh, according to Gene, how do you say that? Twingy. Twingy. Yeah. Uh, an expert in the study of generational differences. One difference is that iGen is growing up more slowly. I, this part is fascinating is. to me. It is. They're growing up more slowly. On average, 18-year-olds today have spent less time unsupervised and have hit fewer developmental milestones on the path to autonomy, such as getting a job or a driver's license, compared with 18-year-olds in previous generations. She even says that 18-year-olds today have the emotional and life maturity of 15-year-olds of past yeah. generations, and that 13-year-olds today have the emotional and life 
uh, maturity of a 10-year-old in past yeah. generations. So this is an interesting concept because I believe it was just yesterday we were talking about beginning to go through this book with our child and our perception, at least in that moment of conversation, to say that children today require a greater level of maturity, at least intellectually, mm -hmm. than we did. Yeah. But this would say both differently and the same, I think. It would say, one, that kids are maturing more slowly mm -hmm. because they've not been allowed. Right. They've they've not been allowed to be anti-fragile. They've been protected from the stimuli that would have gotten them there. Yeah. But then through social media, they are forced to deal with constructs that we didn't have to deal exactly. with for another decade at least. Exactly. So maybe... Maybe the spread of ability is far greater than 10 years. Maybe it's a 20-year difference. Who knows? Yeah. That's really interesting. It to really think is. About. And a little bit convicting that maybe we didn't, haven't allowed enough danger, My soft gosh. danger to exist. This chapter and the next one has been so convicting to right? me. Like, I just, I am just telling you all, I see myself in every page of this of like, I, and it is. I do too. The, the Subtitle of this book is so true because truly with the best intentions, yeah. we love our children. Yeah. We want them to be healthy and whole and to be productive adults. And that some of the things that we've employed to try to get them there are just so antithetical to yes. that experience. So. And so as a result, then, this iGen generation has far higher rates of anxiety and depression. The increases for girls and young women are generally much larger than even still than that among young men. The increases do not just reflect changing definitions or standards. They show up in rising hospital admission rates of self-harm and in suicide, rising suicide rates. The suicide rates of adolescent boys is still higher um, than that of girls, but the suicide rate of adolescent girls has doubled since 2007. Yep. And so the authors are really careful to point out this is not just a, some sort of concept creep. Right. Hang on. Allergies. Um, the, there's actual hard evidence to say mm -hmm. that girls and young women are, again, they're hurting themselves more often. They are attempting suicide more often. Facts are facts. It mm -hmm. has more than doubled since 2007. Right. It's so alarming to look at that. So according to Twingy, is that what we said? Yes. The primary cause of the increase in mental illness is frequent use of smartphones and other electronic devices. Less than two hours a day seems to have no deleterious effects, but adolescents who spend several hours a day interacting with screens, particularly if they start in their early teen years or younger, have worse mental health outcomes than do adolescents with uh, adolescents who use these devices less and who spend, very importantly, more time in face-to-face -face social interactions. Exactly. That's pretty interesting. Yes. Um, let's see. Blah, blah, blah. Is that worth going into? No, I don't think so. Okay. Um, and so then iGen's arrival at college coincides exactly with the arrival and intensification of the culture of safetyism, which is 2013 through 2017. Yeah. 
Members of iGen may be especially attracted to the overprotection offered by the culture of safetyism on many campuses because of students' higher levels of anxiety and depression. Both depression and anxiety cause changes in cognition, including a tendency to see the world as more dangerous and hostile than it really is. And then in my words, what I would add is, hey, after all, if you grew up hyper-protected, wouldn't that be the first thing you'd want from the next stop you make? Where'd my protection go? Totally, yes. And they really go, in this chapter, they really go into facts and figures showing the rise of anxiety and depression over time, looking at boys and girls, all these different things. And then he, the authors make the point that the safetyism culture that we see starting in 2013 wasn't necessarily caused by university campuses. University campuses were responding right. to this influx right. of a new generation that were coming to campus. They talk about in the chapter the needs of mental health uh, counselors and uh, resources on campus were suddenly completely like right. overwhelmed, like a tsunami. Right. Couldn't keep up. It, they could not keep up with the number of students who were requesting it. You know, as you know, it's good it's, when we were that age. You didn't if you had a mental health problem, you didn't tell anybody about right. it. You tried to just power through it. But um, the the campuses were more responding to this new generation of students in creating these atmospheres than they were creating yes. them. And I think that's yes. such an important point because it's easy to, especially if you're just listening to us recap this book, you might get the impression that universities were like creating this whole situation, but it's so interwoven. Well, this, and it is, it is the impression. Yeah. Again, from this perspective of a, of a average American who's like, whatever's going on there is going on there. I got my things, but all of a sudden, there's a disaster. Who's in charge? What's happening? And right. so the finger would have been pointed. But I think this identifies absolutely then the very justified response from from faculty and staff to say, we, it was broken when it got here. Yes, what, exactly. We don't know what's going on either. Stop blaming us and let's figure out how to fix this. Right, 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 right. So this was a very eye-opening chapter looking at anxiety and depression and I think reflects, you know, just anecdotally what we've seen both in our kids, but also in their peers, yes. hearing about some of the struggles that they go through. Yes. There was a birthday party that our oldest daughter was invited to. It's been a year or more now. Who can ever invite everyone? Right. Right. You can afford to invite, well, invite your closest this many. There was one girl who had viewed herself as an attached and very dear friend of our daughter who didn't get invited, and she she almost went insane over the fact that she wasn't invited. And now I can say in retrospect, not only that wasn't invited, but had to watch on Facebook or wherever on the social media's pictures and commentary around the event that she got excluded from. And yeah, she was losing her mind. Yeah, it was... It really does. This chapter is filled with information and it looks at social media and all of these things that are impacting the mental health lives of our kids. And yeah. it's very, very eye opening. So, all right, we're going to, I'm going to call a hard stop here. Okay. We have more material we're prepared for, but I don't, I don't like to push into the 50 minute to an hour dailies when we can help it right now. Maybe that changes in the future. But for now, one, Thank you, ladies, who had the the internal strength to have comfortable commentary and push ahead. And I hope we've answered a little bit of the question. If we haven't, continue to prompt us through there, and we'll we'll continue to visit things. 
Um, and you'll either figure out that we're completely wrong or together we'll both arrive at a different place. Who yeah. knows? Yeah. In the meantime, have an awesome today, would you? Please do. Bye-bye. Studies show that women ages 40 and older are happier, more confident, and less stressed. This is true until they know this expectation and then become less happy, less confident, and more stressed because they are over 40 and don't feel aligned with the results of the study. Plainly, studies suck.